Hello and welcome to the Squiggly Animation Podcast. In this episode, we meet Joe Brum of Studio Joho. So here we are, for the 50th time. Good lord. Who would have thunk it, eh, Steve? Happy anniversary, darling. Certainly not me. All the, the memories and the the laughs, the good times, the fast-forwarding through, you know, I'm sure. <laughs> so, so. Which, what do you think gets fast-forwarded through most? Our drivel when we're chatting about The Simpsons. Hopefully not our guests that we had on. I have had a couple of people in the past say, I think people who tend to know me or us in real life, some of them, like, they'll sort of say, oh, yeah, I, I rather enjoy the kind of segments of you guys chatting, and then I'll probably skip past the guest. <gasps> I think back in the earlier days when um, some of the guest interviews were not very uh, well recorded, they were a little remote before we got our, like, fancy high-tech mics in the first year or so of the podcast, where we'd be recording, like, interviews at noisy pubs on our phones or... Wax cylinder. In the middle of a traffic jam. <laughs> Some of them may have been, like, not that easy to listen to, maybe, mm. which is a shame. But we upped to the old production values pretty quickly. I think that that's kind of helped a lot. I was talking to my girlfriend about it the other day, actually, and she, you know, was a fan of the podcast because she was a fan of me. And then uh, now that she's gotten to know me... Now she's like, oh yeah, I'll listen if there's a good guest. <laughs> <laughs> and she'll just she'll just skip to the guest interview bit. It's so. the same with my significant other as well. <laughs> yeah. So you know we're 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 up to our fiftieth now, Ben. Mm-hmm. So uh, I've had a little I've had a little rummage back uh, to see how many uh, of of all our podcasts uh, I've, I've gone looking for facts because you know me I, I like I like a fact. Yeah. Uh, I like I like data. I'm uh, yeah, you know. It's it's okay. We'll work through this. <laughs> I mean, we're not quite at intervention stage yet, but uh, maybe after this segment. Didn't your Twitter account used to be like animation facts? I did set up an animation facts Twitter account. Yeah. It's still it's still running, uh, but it's not had a fact on it since probably 2009 or something like uh. that. <laughs> something like that. And we actually incorporated it onto the site. Once we had like a whole year's worth of facts. Remember when we relaunched Squiggly and uh, me, you, and Aaron were sort of were passing this spreadsheet round, going, "We need facts. For, we need facts with three hundred sixty-five facts." Yeah, and I think um, that was one of the few areas of the site where I let you two take the lead on that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll I'll do the podcasts and the videos and stuff. You can do the fact spreadsheet. Uh, we went. It didn't go down too well. I, I'm surprised that people didn't go off on uh, on that. But um... well, do you remember that? Did Did you ever watch the original Office, the Ricky Gervais Office? Uh, yeah, yeah, years ago. There was a scene in that where he's on like a blind date. And for some reason, he thinks that this woman's impressed because he knows a, a fact about everything. <laughs> and the disdain, this po- and you know, animation history and animation culture, which is probably what that impulse has evolved into through this uh, wonderful medium that is the squiggly online animation resource. That's perhaps a more valuable uh, use of that impulse than, say, just kind of listing the facts methodically. <laughs> You're going to pepper things Says in. you. Maybe we were just before our time. If it if we relaunch it and it's a success, then I'll claim credit and, and pretend I was involved. Anyway, uh, in, uh, back to what my... What are some uh, facts about the Squiggly podcast? I was going to say, say, back to my mental illness. Um, <laughs> well, it's not it's not actually the 50th podcast, Ben. We've done 64 of these. Say what? Yeah, we've done 64 of these little buggers. 
including uh, British Animation Awards special, four click specials, three Edinburgh specials. Uh, we did uh, four BAF, Bradford Animation Festival specials, an Encounter special, an Annecy special. They're, but they're all special, aren't they, Ben? They're all special. Special is the word that I'm thinking of right now. <laughs> Not necessarily as related to the podcast, but... To the nearest hour, Ben, guess how many hours of podcasting we've done. Before this one, I'm going to guess it's roughly three days, 17 hours, 29 minutes, and 38 seconds. Is Does that equate to 90 hours, uh, 16 minutes, and 4 seconds? Did you actually add it up? Yeah. Okay, I just have them all in iTunes. Oh, in right. <laughs> well, whatever it is. Yeah. Whichever one is more. Um, these might not be all of them I have in here. God knows how long has been cut out. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, that's, 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 uh, I've got a whole, like, mm. yeah, series of little folders for future specials. Did you mention the outtake special just then? Uh, yes, yeah, the outtake yeah. special. Although that's technically also counts as an episode. Yeah. Yeah, well, there are, there's enough for, you know, future outtake specials. There's a lot of stuff I think that we could possibly just put out there where we're just not talking about animation, we're just whinging about pop culture. Could be quite entertaining down the line. We could just do a spin-off podcast, Ben and Steve moaning. Moan, <laughs> Moancast, that'd be good. People love that shit, Gogglebox. Oh, God, yeah, Isn't yeah. Like the most popular show at the moment. Yeah, everyone tells me to watch that, but I just don't like I just don't like the idea of it. It's like I don't like cooking programs. Why, why do you want to watch people cooking? I agree, I, I, yeah. Although I did see a Sunday brunch the other day with uh, Anna Jones, and uh, she's a good reason to watch a cooking program. Hmm. <laughs> Yeah. Although, unfortunately, she's a vegetarian cook. So that kind of... The actual cooking component wouldn't apply to anything I would do. To be honest, a prerequisite for, for fine cuisine is to find some way to soak it in meat juice at some point in the process. <laughs> and uh, I guess that's not what she's about. But uh, she's uh, she's quite lovely. Oh, we've, we've gone straight on to talking about pop culture after we said that we go straight on to talking about pop culture. Mm. <laughs> it's quite ironic. How many guests do you reckon we've had on the podcast all together? Well, let's see. We've got the 64 all together. Most of the first few years had at least two guests per episode. So I'm going to say over 100. 175. Good Lord, that's nearly 200. <laughs> I was off almost by half. Yeah. How many of them can you name, Ben? Uh, maybe like three or four. Yeah. I remember when I when we started this podcast... Back in the days when um, the original Mr. Squiggly, I think he was very uh, keen to not have this podcast that was a, a offshoot of his website be out of keeping with, I guess, his idea of what the spirit of the website was. So he would just watch us record it. <laughs> like we, it was back in the day where we'd be in the same room. Um, and he I, would just I had to drive sit. down to Bristol just so he could stare at us recording <laughs> the podcast every week. <laughs> every month, rather. Yeah. <laughs> It was an interesting time. And then I think by like the third or fourth episode, he felt like, you know what? I've, I've, I've nurtured them enough. They can fly on their own. Well, we didn't really know each other that well before. We'd met a handful, a couple of times maybe. And uh, then when we met in the in the cafe down the road from you uh, to record the first podcast, I remember it was the first time we had a real chat and we were just chatting normally like we do here, you know. And uh, I remember Mr. Squiggly stopped us halfway through the conversation and went, this is brilliant. If you could just talk like this in the podcast, that'd be really good. And it Save really, this gold. For- it, it really, it really stopped us in our tracks. And we were like, <laughs> we're just talking like 
normal people. <laughs> that is weird, because, yeah, the, those first few episodes, they're actually, you are listening to basically two people who don't know each other <laughs> get to know each other. It's an arranged marriage. Yeah. And uh, I had this feeling like, oh, wow, we could do this for, you know, potentially a couple of years. In my head, like, leading toward this sort of long game, of, like, wouldn't it be cool if I interviewed uh, Ren and Stimpy? Mm-hmm. And we ended up getting that by episode four. Because <laughs> <laughs> we talked to Stimpy in episode three. We talked to Ren in episode four. I'm like, f***ing hell, I may as well stop now. Yeah, all done. But by that point, it had sort of gained a bit of momentum. and There's no stopping it. Much like Pacino in the third one that no one ever watched, it kept pulling me back in. <laughs> I could at this point read out every single one, every single one of the guests. Well, if it, uh, it if it so pleases. <laughs> that could take some time. It's 170 well, something. Let's go. How many of these do you remember? Peter Lord, Fraser McLean, Miles Below, Barry Purvis, Colin Harding, Nancy Beeman, Billy West. Hi, everyone. Cars, it's Ben here. So at this point, uh, Steve does indeed proceed with spending the next six minutes literally just listing all the guests we've had. Um, and I was joking about the intervention before. Um, I mean, I have no objection to the list. It's a fine bunch, but you can read it on the website. And so I think for the sake of everyone's sanity, I might fast forward this bit. Jesus, this is still going on forever. How have you all been? Good? Great. Okay, sorry, I'm just going to skip to the end here. Charlie Kaufman, Duke Johnson, Felix Massey, Rosto, and Connor Whelan. I think you said a couple of those twice. Ah, oh, well. Good Christ. Well, there you go. What a what a haul. <laughs> <laughs> and there are plenty more to come. Uh, some people will be welcoming back, some people... Uh, it's strange to think after all of that, but some people that uh, we've not yet had on that uh, are absolute animation legends that uh, will hopefully be gracing the podcast in the near future. Uh, mm. So uh, so keep tuning in, keep downloading. Uh, there's uh, lots of goodies to come. Not all me reading out lists. No. Well, hopefully we can have that be a fixture in future episodes. <laughs> in the world outside of our humble little podcast, what's been tickling your pickle as far as the animation industry goes? My pickle has been well and truly tickled by uh, the arrival of the Red Turtle trailer. Really looking forward to that. It's about time. The Red Turtle, that was Raphael, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's correct, yeah. So this is like an origin story. It's just about him, the Moody Turtle. Um, mm-hmm. that's, uh, that's what we've got to look forward to there. It's, is, of course, from Michael Dudok DeWitt, the director of uh, some very, very acclaimed animation work, like Father and Daughter. And uh, Monk and the Fish mm. was a real big deal. I remember uh, it was. Uh, I think I may have said it on the. I may have said it on the podcast before, or I've definitely said it before that uh, it was the uh, his film Father and Daughter that came out, uh, and I watched it at my first ever animation festival, and it was alongside uh, Susie Templeton's uh, uh, dog. And it was the first screening that I'd been to at an animation festival, and it was the first time that I understood what animation could do. Because everyone was in tears, and then everyone was horrified at Dog. And it's... So, yeah, Michael uh, DeWitt is one of those filmmakers I will always point to and, and as, a, as proof that animation as a form uh, is capable of, of absolutely anything. You know, enchanting, delighting, uh, bringing you to tears, making you feel good about yourself. Just, you know, so wonderful. 
Yeah, that was pretty much how I felt when I saw Return of Jafar. <laughs> yeah, this trailer looks pretty spectacular. Although it's been kind of criticized as, as falling into the trailer trap of seemingly, and this may not be the case, but seemingly telling the entire story in the trailer. Hmm. But true to form, YouTube, of course, never disappoints if you are to watch this on YouTube. First and most highest rated comment, wait, did he fuck a turtle? <laughs> God, you got to love YouTube, haven't you? <laughs> I'm not sure if this is like the the official post of the uh, of the trailer. It's the one that f- pops up first, I think, mm-hmm. if you look up Red Turtle trailer. And then an awful lot of people just like angry that, that apparently this trailer to them is uh, spoiling it. Anyway, it looks fantastic. I think that fortune, should it smile upon us, we'll all be able to catch it at Annecy mm-hmm. when, uh, when we go next month. But certainly there's a great deal of buzz around it. And uh, yeah, how, how long do you reckon this film took to put together because i remember reading on squiggly.com no less that uh, father and daughter took eight years which is a big like commitment for a short film yeah um well i think father and daughter took that time it was it was done traditionally wasn't it and i believe that the beginning of this uh production process it was it was uh <laughs> i believe at the beginning of this production process uh michael uh had to sort of let go of the the idea of doing it traditionally and and you know get with the times so to speak now when you say this wasn't because this looks pretty traditional to me what what do you would you say are the main sort of technological advances of this film is it that it's been animated like in computers and tablets or? yeah tablets it's, it's it's obviously it's uh, it's animated uh, it's full animation but uh, there are a few cg bits i noticed the turtle in particular and and perhaps the bit where the boat's been smashed up uh, or the raft that he creates has been smashed up. But, um, you know, it's all forgivable and it all blends in so nicely. I think uh, also there's parts of the trailer with the, the water, the bits where we're under the sea and we see the ripple effect above. I'm not sure whether that's mm-hmm. effects animation or whether that's uh, an actual effect that's been applied. But uh, what a gorgeous setup. What a gorgeous looking thing. As we were talking about at some length in the last episode, I think the uh, whole Annecy lineup is quite interesting uh, film-wise. So... It's going to be a good month. For its uh, maybe forgivable lack of uh, English or British films in competition, but uh, we'll let it off. So um, sticking to the ocean, Ben, have you seen that uh, uh, Finding Dory is uh, (laughs) causing a splash (laughs) uh, amongst scientists? (laughs) I I saw something in the old uh, Facebook ticker there. Yeah. Between news about Donald Trump and Caitlyn Jenner and all that, uh, what's what's this film done now? <laughs> well, uh, when the last film came out, uh, there was a, a shocking decline in um, clownfish, uh, the the star of the show, the, uh, the little orange uh, creatures that live in the coral reefs, uh, because people watch them on um, on the on the film and decided, oh, I wouldn't mind a clownfish, a pet clownfish, without realising that these animals that they were buying in pet shops weren't farmed. They were actually just captured uh, from the wild and then uh, put into fish tanks, which really strikes me as odd. That, that to me, is the same as... Imagine if fur coat sales went up after 101 Dalmatians, mm. because the film Finding Nemo is about... It's about captivity. It's about... You're supposed to... 
do the opposite after seeing that film, aren't you? Yeah, but on the same, on the other hand, ah, you know, <laughs> and if you can get like a little uh, orange fish with a little blue fish, and you can watch them swim around, and you can name them after the characters, and be like, oh, it's like watching little sort of live action plays. Three weeks of fun before they die. Yeah, have one of them have a kid, and then take the kid away, and watch its despair. <laughs> Throw a pike into your fish tank, and be like, this is high drama. We're making our own films. Yeah. Have you ever been tempted to buy the animal equivalent of one of your beloved, cherished, anthropomorphized cartoon characters? No, but I will say when we were younger, uh, in order to get a pet dog, uh, me and my brothers, uh, it was during the summer holidays and we were like, uh, yeah, do you want to watch a, do you watch a film, Mum? And uh, my parents were dead set against getting a, a a dog. But then we'd put on like Beethoven, 101 Dalmatians, all these films with puppies in and, and, and dogs and animals and stuff. And uh, old dogs go to hell and all that kind of stuff. And we'd watch these videos. And within a couple of weeks, my mother was like, oh, we should get a dog. <laughs> <laughs> it worked. There you go. Um, but yeah. yeah. One of my big disappointments was seeing like a real roadrunner. Yeah. First of all, they're slow as shit. Mm-hmm. And they don't say meep meep, f***ing lies, or do that thing that with the tongue, the yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, pathetic. Did you see a coyote? Did it have any signs on it? Yeah, the coyote was just standing next to it, completely indifferent. <laughs> I think that this is, you know, I was sort of tempted to maybe get like a cat and a chihuahua yeah. to watch their uh, their mayhem and hijinks, uh, or a cow and a chicken. Mm. Um. Um, and other cartoons that had animals in. <laughs> yep. Exhausted that one. Next subject. <laughs> hey, do you want to see something uh, pretty f***ed up? You know, you're talking about like how animation can be used like for all the emotion and all the joy and all the kind of, you know, um, good stuff. Okay. Here's, a, here's an example of animation being used for absolute shittiness. We'll see if I can get this. Look, Mom. I drew a family in school today. Oh, wow. I didn't have time to finish Caleb's face. This is a little girl. She's It's like a sort of, you know, pseudo Pixar-y type American animation CG style. This adorable little girl, and she's showing her mother the picture she drew of the family. And creepily, she didn't draw her little brother with a face. I mean, there are some issues there <laughs> that uh, aren't being addressed. That's kind of glossed over. Um, but then... Like, the the beginning of this little video is the little girl in school, and she sees one of the other family portraits that one of the kids drew. Okay, so she's now describing this picture to her mum. Okay. I didn't have time to finish Caleb's face. <laughs> Carrie drew two mommies. And at this announcement, the mother's face falls. Like, what the shit? <laughs> two mothers? <laughs> <laughs> she told me they're married to each other. My teacher says that all that matters is that people love each other and that they're happy. Okay, so, so far, this is a perfectly okay, you know, video until the f***ing mother of the year chips in with us. And that they're happy. Hmm. Well, people have their own ideas about what is right and wrong. But what matters is how Jehovah feels. Ah, there we go. <laughs> and the penny drops. Uh, and then the style shifts to this kind of illustratory, um... Acidy animation telling the story about Jehovah and how, uh, of course, gay marriage isn't okay. <laughs> this shit really does creep me out. Like the the use of the very accessible aesthetic that kids will immediately identify with. 
Mm. What did, by and large, very positive moral messages that I'm sure people who were subscribed to the doctrine, you know, would consider this a very positive moral message, except, of course, you know, the greater percentage of anyone with any common sense has kind of moved on a little bit. Mm. Um, in an era, in that sort of post, like, do you remember that very famous Dr. Laura letter? I don't This is one of those know. sort of urban legendy things. You might remember it if I describe it. It's basically someone who was... Dr. Laura is one of these kind of, like, you know, doctors in the States who decries uh, gay marriage and that kind of thing. Because, of course, in the Bible it says you can't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so this letter is just basically like, a, oh, okay. Well, Dr. Laura, thanks for uh, educating people on the Bible and all of that stuff. I have a couple of other issues with stuff that the Bible says is wrong. Um, uh, Leviticus twenty five forty four states that I can possess male and female slaves as long as they're not purchased from neighboring nations. Uh, a friend of mine claims this applies to Mexicans, but not Canadians. Why can't I own Canadians? <laughs> um, Leviticus twenty one twenty states that I may not approach the altar of God if I have a defect in my sight. I have to admit that I wear reading glasses. Is there some wiggle room here? I do believe that it is possible to be religious and and also be a little more updated in one's way of thinking. I believe that very sort of you know prominent religious figureheads also subscribe to that. So it is quite odd in this day and age. It's 2016, and there's still like what is identifiable as propaganda, you know. But using this this very kind of cutesy, clean, almost Disneyish uh, look to it. Because mm. I've I've seen a lot worse CG animation. I mean, there isn't a ver- very much in it, and it's not brilliant, but like, it's competently rigged, and like you can tell there's emotion in the acting. Because when the mum hears that her classmate has two lesbian mums, oh boy, is she not happy with this situation? <laughs> How do we get this kid out of school? Yeah, there's a lot of effort gone into this, isn't there? By the animation company. I mean, I, I don't know. There are two schools of thought on this. Is that I'm not entirely sure that this would represent all Jehovah's Witnesses. Maybe I'm not, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go so far as to say this is this is representative of them all. Every religion has its spectrum. Oh yes, absolutely. And this yeah. this was commissioned by somebody on the far end of of the Jehovah's Witness spectrum, the type where they believe that propaganda as a tool is justified. Uh, but I mean, for us. I'm not religious. I'm sure you're not as well. And it kind of like, it's it's a bit of a laugh, but it's terrifying at the same in the same way. I mean, I'm, I can quite happily laugh at the airport analogy in this in this in this film. Oh yeah, with the going through security, <laughs> trying to go through security, but he's got a bag full of facts and science with him, <laughs> and he can't. He's not bothered that people are in love and that they can get on and raise a family. He's taking this bag through with him to what looks like a park, but they call paradise. He just needs to just leave it. Like, because in an airport, you just leave a bag in an, anywhere in the airport and you can just go through security and it's fine, you know. I love the, the lesson at the end. Like, this is how to resolve the situation. But I want everyone to get to paradise. So does Jehovah. Sure he does. You know what? People <clears throat> can change. That's why we share his message. So, what can you say to Carrie? Well, I could tell her about the paradise. I could tell her about the animals and the resurrection. That oh, that'll make her the most popular kid in school. <laughs> <laughs> of course, that's the kind of thing that, that I think would have just gone completely unseen had someone not sort of come across it. And the person who has posted this up to much more sort of visibility than I think it initially got obviously is not 
a subscriber to that particular mindset. Mm-hmm. But it is interesting. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there are probably that you know there may be people listening to this are like, yeah, what's wrong with that? Because well, I know that's one of the very few instances where we've had kind of like people kind of emailing you with complaint. Because I think in one episode we were talking about how it was okay to be gay, and people were like, ah, guys, let's just keep it about the cartoons. Yes, yeah, yeah, we had that a while ago, <laughs> didn't we? But it, we're, we're talking about animation and propaganda and, and, and its place as an actual tool uh, within that. And, you know, it's it's something that's been part of the history of animation for years. I mean, I'm not comparing, you know, religion to politics, but there have been particular political parties that have employed animation and set up animation studios and uh, in order just to convey a, a certain message. And it is... It is odd, isn't it, to see that it's still blatantly used in this way. I think that there are definitely quite significant parallels between the way religion and politics would approach that kind of uh, thing. Mm. On the flip side, of course, it can be a very positive thing. And I think that certainly it's a little more encouraging when you see stuff go viral that is actually putting across like an important social message. Like the old thing with, like, do you remember the tea and consent video? Hmm, I think so. That was a, a pretty, that was like an animated explainer type video. It was basically like the analogy of someone invites you in. For a cup of tea. Or they say they want a cup of tea and then they change their mind. It doesn't mean that you then have to hold them down and force tea down their throat. Hmm. Like it was a quite effective use of animation in that respect and, and quite a good intention behind it. There are, there are positive ways to do the same kind of thing. I was just thrown by the effort that went into it. It's a little more easy to kind of watch stuff like this. When they're really lazily produced, it makes it a little easier to watch them. So I think the fact that there were sort of not absolutely dreadful production values in this, like this is like straight-to-video sequel quality CG. <laughs> Animation is an art form, and so it can it encompasses everything. So if anyone's complaining about us talking about its use in religion or politics, then, you know... Bugger off. Keep an eye out, but also on the Squiggly uh, on the Squiggly website. I'm re- reading a book at the moment that's quite interesting. You may enjoy it as well. I, I'm not entirely sure I, I'm convinced by its argument. It's written from a very militant political perspective of the role of um, blackface and minstrel culture, what effect that had on the development of the design of all the Rubber Hose-era cartoon characters and how ultimately... Every classic cartoon character, including Mickey Mouse, owes its roots to the aesthetic of minstrel shows, that kind of thing. Okay. And I, there are some interesting points to be made. The issue I'm sort of having with this book, and I've only really just started it, is that it's, it's being presented as an irrefutably concluded fact, rather than bringing up a subject uh, for discussion. Because there is a lot of that that is undeniable. If you look at the old cartoons, the kind of stuff that you won't be able to buy on DVD now. But there's a lot of stuff that you can find on YouTube that absolutely you know, has elements of what would be considered a very racially insensitive culture. Well, Bosco was uh, the, the original mm. Warner Brothers uh, cartoon character that... He's, he doesn't appear in the lineup with Bugs Bunny and Porky Pig and everyone else <laughs> no. uh, nowadays, does he? Not quite. Uh, but then the old school like look of Mickey Mouse, sort of like Steamboat Willie and before the sort of early incarnations. Ultimately, it's down to the economics of animation production not being in color, being all line art. Well, it makes sense for them to have white gloves. It makes sense for their bodies to be black. 
Mm. And I think that there are some instances, like you say, like Bosco, there's a kind of direct derivation there. There are certain characters in, say, old George Powell uh, animations that are very clearly taken from that. And then, you know, there are points in some of the band Looney Tunes films where Bugs Bunny is literally in blackface. It's fucking surreal. Mm-hmm. And I think that the the motive behind this book, or one of the big thrusts behind this book, is the the line of, well, it was a different time, let's move on isn't satisfactory to this particular individual and they really want to kind of get to the heart of it. And I think in getting to the heart of it, they've dug a little deeper and are seeing things that aren't necessarily there surrounding the heart of the issue. Do they actually go into the production or is it an opinion which is then backed up by, look, look at this character or is it, how, how do they go Well, I mean, it? it's sort of both. So again, I've only just started it, um, but it's it, so far it's kind of both where a lot of like research is being presented uh, and a lot of conclusions because of that research are being presented. But it hasn't thus far like identified how the research and the conclusion really is related. Mm. It's kind of... So it does go into the cultural landscape. It does go into the, the times and the... So far, it hasn't really gone into the production practicalities yet, which is kind of an important thing because that is a big factor of the design style and you know working out how animation is. I think that sometimes people, if it supports... Uh, an ideology or an agenda people will absolutely they'll look at a cloud and they'll see a certain shape Mm -hmm. that isn't really there it's actually just a cloud the thing that has come to my mind reading this book uh that sort of popped in my head was uh there's a reason why mario as in super mario brothers uh has been throughout the years presented as a tradesman like he's a plumber in the older games he was a carpenter and it's because of the number of pixels in a sprite Back in like the 80s, the only way you could like show the arms as separate from the body was to have the body be a different color. So it looks like he's wearing overalls. Mm -hmm. It started with this sprite design. They then put together like artwork for the game box that made him look like he, you know, he was some kind of carpenter, he was a plumber, whatever. But if one were to write a book about the culture of video games, they could say like, and of course Mario is, you know, the stereotypical voice of the lower working class and how it's oppression and blah, blah, blah. No, it's just the number of fucking pixels. Yeah, he's, he, he fights a monkey. I mean, come on. Maybe these cartoon characters were black and white look because they had black and white to deal with. Yeah. So yeah, it is interesting uh, from a cultural point of view. Uh, whether he does go into this is that if you look back in the early days, the East Coast and West Coast animation. They were two completely separate things. I'm sure it's a, a thing that you've come across yourself, Ben. But if you look at a film like Bimbo's Initiation, uh, which was an old uh, Fleischer animation, really trippy, really weird, really kind of um, far out, psychedelic in, in its way. And then you go across to the uh, West Coast and you see that Disney was making films about talking animals. This is about talking animals, but it's really surreal and psychedelic because the animators used to hang out in jazz clubs and they used to hang out in these places where you know they were having a you know a pretty wild time so there is there are kind of influencing factors there as well oh absolutely but in the design style absolutely you're right there it is why does he wear gloves so you can see when he makes a fist that it's a fist yeah so you can see his eyes on his head that's you know it's an odd one i'm i'm looking forward to reading the rest of it you know and seeing where because I do think that there are good intentions behind it. I actually I picked it up uh, uh, from 
a little list of new books. Yeah, you know the cartoon research Jerry Beck's website. Mm-hmm. He put up mm-hmm. a little list of um, new animation books to check out, which is worth a look. I like that website a lot. What is the name of this book that you're talking about? This is called Birth of an Industry by Nicholas Salmond. Mm. So at some point in the near future, I'll put up a review and probably have a little bit more of a of an idea of perhaps. Because, like I say, this is sort of a first impressions, the first couple of chapters. You know, me, I just like that people pay enough attention to stuff that's that old and, you know, such an old part of the culture that there's still conversations to be had about it. There are libraries that could be written on the actual f***ed up things in, in American animation and British animation and German animation. You know, every nation that had an issue with another nation, it would be reflected mm. in the animation of the time for either entertainment or propaganda or sort of mix of both. So it's interesting. I wonder if people will like look back 80 years from now at like the episode of South Park where they, they meet Osama Bin Laden and watch it at absolute face value, mm. <laughs> you know, in the way that we do then. Like maybe there was an element of satire that isn't obvious to us now because of what we define satire as. Like I think like shows like The Honeymooners uh, kind of misrepresented by time and memory. And when you watch them, they're actually very on point and really quite clever in a lot of the satirical elements. Mm. I remember like there was, when the Andy Kaufman movie came out with Jim Carrey and sort of ever since Andy Kaufman has been sort of hailed as this insane but brilliant genius who was always kind of doing a number over the audience. Yeah. But if you ever actually watch any of the footage of the stuff you do, the audience absolutely got it. Mm-hmm. Like, he wasn't confusing anyone. They could tell when he was doing a character. But if you were to watch that film, the the Milos Forman film, you would think that he was just bamboozling the world. Like, what's going on? Yeah, people fail to contextualize things. And it's the same with, you know, when we talked about the, the Jehovah's Witness thing, when we're talking about, um, you know, blackface in animation, when we're talking about political uh, stuff, it's all down to contextualizing it. It's all about that, isn't it? And I wonder if back in you know the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, if just being alive at that time, you just kind of inherently knew when something was done out of hate and when something was done out of celebration of culture. Mm. If it was just, you know, because I think that, that intent is a huge part of what makes something insensitive. Just on a on an intuitive level, you understand when someone is being serious and when someone isn't or when someone is being satirical or when Poe's law comes into effect. At any rate, yes, there's a lot to, there's a lot to discuss and a lot out there. Uh, springboards for discussion. Of course, as we, uh, as we always say, if you have any thoughts on anything, get in touch. We uh, are reachable via Twitter at squiggly, facebook.com slash squiggly magazine. You can email us, steve at squiggly.co.uk or ben at squiggly.co.uk. Give us your two cents. Or if they just want to talk about something else completely, that you think would be uh, an interesting subject of discussion. Or if you just want to tell us we're great or we're terrible. You yeah, know. tell us we're terrible. Whatever. It's an open forum. So anyway, uh, uh, changing the subject uh, and leading on to the next segment of the podcast. Last episode, we were talking about the Cardiff animation strand of the uh, Cardiff Indie Festival, which was great fun. And uh, one of the films that was playing there was The Meek from Australia, Studio Joho directed by Joe Brum, and uh, we've uh, we've spoken about this film a few times. It's a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. It really, uh, to me, it kind of pushes cell action as far as, like, the level of, like, detail and all how much sort of is going on in certain shots. They get incredibly complex and very interesting. And uh, it's also very funny. 
and uh, I, you've seen this film, yeah? Uh, yes, the, the the purple fella. Um, yeah. And... Well, it's it's a it's sort of a purple society. These kind of ant like people mm-hmm. who are very very small and um, a bit like lemmings. Yeah, it, it would make a great app. Mm, yes. <laughs> uh, something like World of Goo or something where you swipe and, you know, build this structure. And uh, it's interesting. It basically has, there are two versions of this film that I've seen uh, doing the rounds. One I saw in Encounters last year, where the visuals are just kind of there to speak for themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I saw it click, and it was the same film, but there was this narration added to it. And that the narration is kind of interesting. The narration makes the film about a very, very specific subject. And it basically tells the audience what the metaphor is meant to be, mm-hmm. which is fine. But I sort of felt that there was actually more to the film without that specificity. Yeah. Because you could absolutely watch it. And, and basically, it is a film about codependence and trying to wrestle with it and trying to ultimately break free from it in, say, a relationship uh, someone who's bad for you. But it also, if you were to look at it from another angle, it's also has some interesting points about you know politics, presumably. There's a certain hierarchical visual motif to it about how power corrupts, things like that, that are all kind of presented in this sort of cartoony way that's at times quite dark. Uh, there's some good old sort of fashion cartoon violence. You know, there's more than meets the eye at first glance. And that's sort of consistent with their other output. I think that what a lot of people would know this studio for would be a bunch of stuff they've done for college humor. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you ever see Tinderella? Uh, yeah, they did the uh, Paper Man as well, the, the yeah. Paper Man threesome. So that's kind of, it's sort of a, a thing with them, I guess, to kind of like capture that look. Present it with a sort of slightly drier or more adult humor, mm-hmm. perhaps. Let's hear from the filmmaker first of all. Uh, this is Joe Brum talking about his work at Studio Joho and the film The Meek. And uh, we'll talk a little bit more about it afterwards. So can you tell me a little bit about the style that was developed for The Meek? Yeah, well, the um, a lot of it's dictated by the software we use, the sort of animation where, where Cell Action, you probably might have heard of Cell Action. Yeah, so myself and Mark, who are the, is the main animator, we um, worked on the series for 10 years in London, really, Charlie and Lola and... Um, at the Ben and Holly's and Little Princess, so cell action's kind of our thing. So yeah, a lot of it was is that cell action cut out, you know, no dimension sort of style that we're used to, and so that sort of gives that real side on look to it. I saw the Meek in a children's story here in Bristol, and I know it's been screened in other like other screenings around the world. Was it intended for children or no? It was in the children's section, was it? Yeah, it was in the 14 plus so it wasn't for like little kids but I was actually like I know there's that one scene in it where I was like oh I'm surprised this is in this jury <laughs> well but 14 you're probably right in the zone for that <laughs> the content I suppose yeah well that's an interesting choice to have uh, slotted in but yeah no it definitely wasn't wasn't aimed at like young kids but yeah I think from teenagers up I think that's fine especially at that age, you get into a lot of relationships that you think are the be-all, end-all, don't you know? It might be nice to be reminded that there's, that you know, sometimes they're, they're, they're not all you think they're going to be. But no, it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily designed for children, I wouldn't say. Also, this film, when I saw this film, it didn't have a narrator, but I know it also has a narration to it. Um, why is there two different versions and which do you prefer? 
Yeah, that's a, that's a tricky one. At the moment, I prefer the non-narrated. My producer prefers the narrated, although, to be honest, I haven't shown her the, the full non-narrated. Yeah, it was one of those things that once, you know, I was so close to it, I was so close to every aspect of it that it took, a, you know, it took a couple of months and took some people to see it and talking to them and getting some feedback just to to get a, a decent gauge on whether I thought the narration was, was too much, if you know what I mean. Yeah, at the moment I quite, you know, I love it just being a, a quiet experience that you can sort of piece together a bit more yourself. But in saying that, it's, you know, I just saw it, it, it just won at Austin, so where I just got back from, and it was narrated, and I quite, like, suddenly I like that again, so, I don't know. I noticed that the sound was done by the Cat Empire. How did you get them involved, and what was it like to work with them? Yeah, well, it's not the band, it's the keyboardist from the Cat Empire, um, Gil, who's a, yeah, he's, he's a super talented guy. Well, Laura emailed him, and I mean, I, we sort of did a list of, of, you know, musicians who we'd love to get involved, and he was, the Cat Empire, uh, you know, were, were up there. So Laura emailed, and, um, and he, he does quite a lot of that, so he was keen. And uh, it was it was awesome. We you know went and met him, and he's he's a really sound guy, and he sort of he, he sort of you know knew where we we're coming from with the film. It was great. I mean, it was a really hard process for me. I think I'm usually usually my little brother does the music with a lot of all of our things with a lot of input from me. So it was a slight matter of, of standing back a little bit, which which was um, took a bit of getting used to. But but you know he was he's just. He knows how to write a good hook, and then he knows how to, you know, score action. So, you know, once once we were sort of settled on that, he just sort of took off with it. And I think the piece really suits the kind of the tone. You know, it's a bit of a, a, a over the top sort of romantic kind of uh, almost love boat like quality to it. Um, yeah, I was I was really happy with how it turned out. It works incredibly well. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think he did well. I mean, we we changed it changed a lot. We sort of we were going to go with very there's that video game Botanicula. I don't know if you've heard of that, but the the guys who made Machinarium and and it was all it's set down in little bug world and that uses really lots of sort of buggy and organic sort of sounds. And so it was really going down that direction, but we sort of it wasn't quite working. And then you know it it went more orchestral and. Yeah, no, I like it. It's it's it was one of those things where you you know where it's so nice when someone working on your film exceeds your expectations. You know, I really like that. So you said you um you used to work in England on children's TV shows. Can you tell me a little bit about that and then what prompted the move? I guess back to Australia. Yeah, well, I, I moved to London when I was about 21 and got my first job with uh, Tim Searle on, uh, years ago on 2D TV and I'm Not an Animal. And, uh, and I, up until then, I'd, I, was, I was, had done a lot of hand-drawn animation and I was and doing Flash. And, and so Cell Action was making a, its sort of presence known back then, really. And suddenly it was, it was a godsend, you know. It was all the things that Flash didn't have. And so... Yeah, I've worked with it ever since, really. I went from them to Hibbert and Ralph and then ended up with Charlie and Lola um, and did two seasons with them. 
and then did some various kind of holiday and sit cover with um, Ashley and Baker and, and Little Princess and then went to Africa and, and worked on Tinga Tinga for a little while. And then, so Charlie, yeah, it's what, what prompted the leave. Charlie and Lola finished, and I think the crisis had hit, maybe it was 2008, and there, it didn't look like there was much coming up on the horizon. There was a little gap there. And, um, yeah, look, I, I'd always wanted to, I was ready to go home by this point, and I'd always wanted to start my own studio, so, and, you know, kind of armed with cell action. I just thought, look, we've got, like, a good a, a good platform to, to start up a company, so... That's what I did, um, and went about five years on now, and and yeah, going going quite strong. We've got some good regular clients, and so no longer in kids' television world, but yeah, it was it's a fantastic ten years, and I learned you know just learned so much, and hopefully one day we'll we'll get back into it, but maybe from from our end. Can you tell me a little bit about what it was like to actually set up a company in Australia? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean Brisbane, where I'm from. There really isn't anything going on. So I, the first client we got was there was sort of two clients happen at once. We got we got a big a big lot of money from Half Brick. They they're in prison and they so we worked with them on a on a property of ours and and so that kind of kicked us off. And then at the same time, College Humor, which are an American website, we started doing little little tiny jobs for them. So it was kind of. You know, it was a bit touch and go. I wasn't too sure whether I'd be able to pay the rent, but um, I was doing a day of lecturing, and we just had a baby, so we had about wow. had a little bit of money through the the baby bonus. And I thought, look, this will give me three months where I can pay the rent, and we'll see if this thing takes. So I quit the job that I had and started it. And yeah, so like technically, most of our you know most of our clients weren't Brisbane based, you know with College Humor, they were our main sort of clients. But since then, we, you know, we do all the, there's the Gallery of Modern Art in Brisbane and we do all their kids' exhibitions and, and we've just started with the Gallery of Victoria now. So we do, you know, there, there is local work to be done and it's getting more and more now actually, working with another company um, called Ludo on some Cartoon Network stuff. So, yeah, it, it is there. It's just, it's lots of short-term stuff. There's no, it's not like London where you've got 50, 60 person studios going from series to series. But I, you know, I quite like it. It's it's nice to have, have these little short, exciting little jobs. It's definitely, it's not London and it's not Sydney or Melbourne. But yeah, look, we've, we're still here and we're doing, you know, doing better than I ever thought we'd do really. Um, so yeah, you just gotta, you gotta hunt it out in Brisbane. On College Humor, I know you've been responsible for some of why I would say some of the best of the College Humor animated versions, um, like the Paperman spoof and Cinderella. What's it like to try and sort of incorporate that kind of very classic style into the cell action world? Yeah, well, you know, it's it obviously, you know, it's not, it doesn't, it only is like a, a mirror, a, a very scant sort of, you know, approximation of, of what Disney is, but I mean that's good enough for the for the purposes of these jokes. I think just so it, it reminds you of, of a, a Disney character. So yeah, it's you know the, the college humor stuff's great because every script is a completely new visual style. So you know my main designer Mark Patterson, he just gets a new whole new set of characters or style to do for every job. You know, so 
it's 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 good like that, you know. We're not just doing the same um, sort of character design for each one. But yeah, it's. I mean, we definitely can get the look of of the Disney style characters more than we can get the animation of them. If you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, but yeah, look, you know, Cell actually, it's it's come along leaps and bounds, and and you know, we it, we get a good. 2D cutout approximation, or oh, I like to think we do a good 2D cutout approximation of expensive animation. Um, but yeah, they're, they're a lot of fun. They're a lot of fun, actually. So that was Joe Brum, director of The Meek, and you can see a lot more of his work and the studio's work at studiojoho.com. And joining me now on the podcast is uh, our interviewer, Laura Beth Cowley. Laura Beth, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Very well. You were quite uh, impressed by the meek, as I recall. It was uh, one of the standouts of Encounters last year. Yeah, it was. A, it was a good film. I was surprised that it was in the uh, children's category, and he was quite surprised when I told him that it was in the children's category. It wasn't in, like very young. It was like fourteen. But, but even still, there was a couple of visuals in there yeah. that were a little. Um... <laughs> well, like he said, he was just like, really, even with the censored wanking bit. <laughs> Fourteen-year-olds, like, they they liked it. You're speaking their language. <laughs> yeah. so. I guess that whole that section comes in quite late, and it's such a a mild-mannered film for the majority of it. That came as quite a big shock in it, anyway. So, and that's why I think it stood out to me because it was just a laugh out loud moment. I'm like, oh my god, <laughs> what? <laughs> so it worked really well. So we were talking before the interview about the differences in the two versions. I think with the narration over the top, it makes more it makes more sense in terms of what the film was meant to be, because it was meant to be a film about like addiction, addiction to like the nicotine addiction to a person that's unhealthy to you and stuff. And that to me didn't really come across without the narration. But I didn't. That wasn't a problem. It's still even if you take that out of the equation, there are other things that you can get from the film. Certainly, like it's not necessarily, even though they had this intended idea of what the metaphor was meant to be, there are other metaphors in it, as we were saying before. It's kind of, um, it's a little open to interpretation, but it's an interesting idea to kind of have two versions out there. I don't know which one he'll end up putting up online. I I imagine whichever one he likes more because he's the director, so he gets the final say. So on the subject of short films and festivals and all of that, I recently returned from Stuttgart. And actually, I had returned by the time the last podcast went out, but we'd recorded it before. Uh, So we haven't actually talked about Stuttgart so far. But really nice crop of new films. And I think that certainly in anticipation of Annecy, which has a... I I sort of cross-checked a largely different selection of films. So between the two, um, there's going to be a great big bumper crop of stuff to talk about and people to look out for, which is great. The, The appreciation for new filmmakers or old filmmakers making new work is obviously a big part of what the uh, squiggly operation is all about. It's uh, good to maybe chat about a few of those. Give the listeners some names and titles and things to look out for. So I guess to start with, are there any right off the top of your head, before we kind of methodically go through the program, which I have in my hands, uh, any off the top of your head that really stood out to you? Panic and Bingo by Juiced Limon, which are both... D- two different films. Yeah, you met the guy there as well, didn't you? Yeah, well, Bingo's by a different guy, oh, but it's it? the same studio. Oh. Um, it's a studio called um, Frame Order, and they're based in the Netherlands. Uh, used to, I'd, I'd met at Stuttgart when I was there last time, about five years ago. 
a really nice guy. He was there with a film called Things You Better Not Mix Up, which is great fun. It's online now. He's since made other films that have uh, been at Stuttgart and interim editions. And Panic won the main audience prize, which I think to a lot of filmmakers is you know, the more important prize to win in the sense it's a lot more sort of validating. Yeah, it's one of those kind of films, like a, a comedy of errors type film where just everything gets... But they really push it, like where most, I think, American or English people would be like, this is a bit much. They were like, nope, let's keep going. How let's can go we the get... extra Dutch mile and, you know, really... I uh... hurt Nana more. Yeah. <laughs> very good. Yeah, old ladies tend to not fare very well in uh, in youth films. Uh, he has a real sense of making the the really troubling quite palatable. And it was something that we discussed, actually, during the uh, the filmmaker talk shows was where exactly is that line drawn. And he made quite a, a good point in the sense that a lot of what happens in Panic, a lot of the action is all taking place inside this woman's head. And even though it's a cartoon already, there's something about that extra degree of removal from reality that makes you know certain things more acceptable, I think, as an audience member. It makes sense that he would say that, but then you have Bingo, where it's all happening in reality. Is it like reality within cartoons, of course? But like, oh, I think Bingo is slightly different in in that respect. Like, Bingo is more kind of um, cause and effect, slap dash, slapstick calamity thing, where no one's sort of horribly injured. People are more just embarrassed or inconvenienced, and it's more. I think there are more sort of gross out laughs, whereas in Panic. There are certain sort of moments that are more kind of like violent moments, I suppose. But um, that kind of cartoony violence that's um, sort of weirdly cute in a way. And when married with really, really, really pitch-perfect precision timing, yeah. you know, is, is wonderful stuff. So you're rustling away over there. What uh, what else do you remember? Ivan's Need, which was one of your favorites. Yeah, that one is, that's basically uh, Ben Mitchell, the movie. <laughs> <laughs> what, you know, Ben Mitchell's pre-adolescence. Um, ben Mitchell, the early years. If you go back to our like click podcast specials, you'll hear a little bit from the filmmakers behind Ivan's Need. It's a student film. It's a sort of joyful celebration of, I guess, young male lust and food and love, I guess. Basically, tits feel like bread dough. I guess that's essentially its primary message, yes. It's one of those films that makes a lot, I would imagine, made a few people uncomfortable, like the slightly more prudish or unwilling to admit that that's something people think or whatever Um, maybe maybe it was also very like acid like everything was like very acidically colored which are very very intense color palette Uh, it seemed to go down quite well with the germans as best i could tell won an award i believe as well yeah it was very cute and very appealing like you really I don't know, it was just like, ah, <laughs> he's a little weirdo. <laughs> but he's a lovely little weirdo. Like I say, Ben Mitchell, the film. Exactly. Another one of the award winners uh, was All Their Shades, Tous les Nuances, by Chloe Elier, that I believe was also a student film. I think her sort of final major project uh, at her university. And it's a film, it's about women. Uh, it's a very sort of poetic, uh, romanticised love letter to womankind, a lot of sort of cliched categorizations of what it is about women that are so appealing and it's sort of juxtaposed against a slightly more realistic depiction, which is a lot more idiosyncratic, but I think in a lot of people's respects, all the more endearing. Yeah, it was a good, it was very, very good. And it was very, um, 
It was stop motion, wasn't it? It was all like plugs and and pegs and stuff. And yeah, her puppets are kind of made from like found debris and bric-a-brac and stuff like that. Like the heads are like light switches. But it's like all the different types of light switches you could find on any kind of appliances. So it, I guess, to sort of represent the different sizes, shapes, and whatever of women. Mm. Yeah, or well, maybe it's just what was lying around. Maybe. I have a lot of plugs I'm going to make use and make a film about women. It's, it's the normal mentality for most stop-motion people. So elsewhere, as part of the uh, the animated Calm Award, always good to see new work from Bill Plimpton. Uh, he had a film in called The Loneliest Spotlight, which was, I think, sort of, I think the best film to compare it to for people who are familiar with Bill Plimpton's work would be The Fan and the Flower which was this not particularly Bill Plimpton-y type of story. It was kind of a children's fable almost about a fan and a flower that kind of gaze up and down at one another respectively uh, and the sort of doomed quote-unquote romance therein. And it was quite soft-spoken and poignant and it was narrated by Paul Giamatti and it was, I think at the time, a quite different style for Bill Plimpton. This film, I I felt, was very much tonally in that vein. It was... um, quieter more of a kind of fable i guess than anything else so none of the kind of usual sex and violence type stuff you you would expect to get from uh from bill plimpton it was narrated by Patton oswalt who uh animation fans will also know as remy the rat from ratatouille and i'm sure he's done various other sort of animation things over the years so that was nice to see so going back through some of the other films that were in the international competition uh there were some films that are familiar to squiggly there was carface by Claude Cloutier, which we played at uh, Math last year. Some stuff we hadn't seen before. There was Café d'Amour, a pixelated slapstick comedy. That was from Germany, by uh, Benedict Toniolo. And pixelation, I think, when done you know, well, is a pretty effective filmmaking tool. This, I thought, was sort of nearly there as a film. I, I didn't feel it was a complete all-rounder. I think Pixelation is one of those things that can be, like you said, incredibly well done and can be really moving. Like Stanley Pickle is a really good example of that because they really utilise the medium with the whole mechanical works so it makes humanistic toys. And there's actually been a couple of films that have come out this year. There's like an NFTS film that's come out this year that was quite similar to this one. It was like a love... No way, it wasn't like a love story, was it? No, but it was it was like a it was like a dance in a bar that kind yeah. of thing. This is like a, a sort of love Coffee chase shop. in a cafe. Yeah, but this 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 was a kind of mix of pixelation and fake pixelation, which I'm noticing. There's a sort of growing propensity toward. It's when people, I guess, when they're running out of time or something, or they just want to be economic, they don't actually approach the pixelation in the way that I think it's sort of technically supposed to where you pose your performers as you would a stop-motion puppet from frame to frame. What I'm seeing in certain films more often now is that certain shots, or sometimes entire films, will kind of fake pixelation by just filming the performers do stuff really, really slowly. They then speed it up, the footage automatically dropping the frame rate, then conform the frame rate to, like, twos, to get something that approximates the pixelation look. But you can immediately tell because the the juddery jaggedness of a proper pixelation performance is very, very identifiable. I think in this film, they didn't do that that often. And I think the only times they did it is when gravity is working against you. So shots where like 
their jumping or falling where it's very very difficult to do pixelation I think is when they use it in this because I remember they used it when he like jumps out of the doorway I think they do that then mm-hmm. and I think it's because it would be a hard it's like them being thrown out so mm-hmm. I think it'd be quite difficult to do that in like pixelation because having done a pixelation workshop this week people are rubbish because mm-hmm. <laughs> they get really uncomfortable and puppets don't complain yeah. and that's why you know most stop motion puppet people are people that would have been actors or wanted to direct theater or something and puppets are easier what would be perfect for pixelation cadavers i'm surprised they haven't done that but there's, there's got to be a whole like line in that surely. when you think of yan sungmai he used to like i think it was yan sungmai that used to do it with bugs yeah so yeah. Get dead things, get dead Taxidermy people. Taxidermy is a really popular form of stop motion materials. The, the amount of fun you'd be able to have with like a dead person. You, you could get it to do all sorts of things, put it in all sorts of wacky positions. You could do crazy things with their eyes, like you could like rotate their eyes like you would have stopped because they, well, they're not going to complain. Who are they going to whine to? Whereas when you pull that shit with real people, they're all like, mm, my legs, my joints, <laughs> I've been here my for eyeballs. Four hours. Please let me move. Nope. But that film was good. I liked its use of, like, not just the humans, but, like, the tables and the, the chairs and the furniture and the cafe sort of bringing a couple together. That was kind of the basic story of it. Yeah. And they used, like, legs that have been chopped down so that, like, a chair will appear from the ground. It's just really nice old-school stop-motion techniques that you don't see as often as anymore but get used quite well in pixelation because there's no other way of doing it, so they have to do it that way. I think stop motion is always nicer when it's you haven't been given the luxury of being able to use every material known to man. You kind of are forced to sort of do things in camera and old school. And then even though it's a pain in the ass at the time, it normally makes a film look a little bit more real. On the subject of stop motion, that's a little confusing in its execution. Another film that was uh, quite interesting that I had previously seen at Click, but I think this was the first time. You saw it was Under the Apple Tree by Eric van Schaik from the <laughs> Netherlands. And this is very interesting as a film. It's, um, I, th- I thought, very nicely made. I really liked the level of detail. And the, uh, they had the set on display in Click, and it's absolutely massive. They didn't have any of the puppets there, I don't think. But that's all, it's a little confusing to see it because that has that kind of same effect that it, it almost looks like you're watching marionette puppets with the frame rate dropped because they've applied somehow a kind of motion blur to the action. So it really has this strange, almost live action equality about it. But best I can tell, and I think you've, you've researched into this, it is actually all technically traditional stop motion, is it not? Well, they have a lot of making of videos on their website. And as far as I can see, it is. Right. I'm interviewing him at the end of the month, so I, I intend to ask. But I have a feeling he's just applied like you said, motion blur to everything because it has this kind of weird, fuzzy, ethereal feel, which is fine because of the kind of film it is. It's kind of like a dark mm. comedy with, like, dead people. And it's not that the the blur has just generally been applied to the footage. It's like it's been sort of specifically painted on and animated with the movement mm. to make it look like the way a blur would actually uh, act in that, uh, in that way. I, I had only one real issue with this film, and I suspect it's a translation issue more than anything else, is as just how tenuous the rhyming is in the poem. Yeah. The I, Perhaps in the original language, if it wasn't originally English, it works a little better as a poem. I just find the translation really, really 
it was kind of reaching a little bit in a lot of respects like and the way they would kind of contort words to like please make this rhyme yeah. <laughs> i'm i'm not the biggest fan of narrated films anyway i think the film would have worked perfectly fine without it i mean the kind of rhythmic narration happens with dialogue the yeah. characters in it are talking in rhyme and they they kind of there's no real reason they need to be in a way like i think there's a little bit of narration i um, think it's probably from the kind of brief glimpses i've seen of the director online i think it's kind of a homage to like vincent and tim burton and edward gory and i think it's like a homage to that kind of thing especially with the kind of victorian gothic look to it all so i think it works fine another film that was a uh, nod to edward gory although you know a, a quite different uh, overall style was james cunningham's film accidents blunders and calamities from new zealand uh, this again was a student film but uh, because of the way this course is structured uh, he as the course leader was the director and uh, this large team of students put together this very sophisticated and polished collection of live action CG animation scenarios where all these, you know, insects and animals meet grim ends. And the way that that film is put together, it's like going through the alphabet. So each death has its own alphabet accordingly, or rather each animal, I suppose. Mm. And so that was a really, that was a really nice piece of work. Yeah, it worked very well. It's probably, I found some of it, once again, some of the like words and alphabet kind of confusing, but it's because it's Australian, so it's like Australian animals. Certain insects that we thankfully don't actually get over here, or things that would like climb into our shoes at night and kill us in the morning. Yeah, I think some of the words, because obviously, like, if you don't want to use zebra, like, what else do you use for Z? So it was like some of them are like, it works very well, like rhythmically, it's very satisfying. You have to think about it a little bit to know what's going on or know what the animal is. Oh, there's one that I really, really liked. French film, Céline Deveau, uh, Les Repas Dominicales. Or as the narrator describes it, Les Repas Dominicales! The narrator <laughs> needs a fucking Valium. Um, <laughs> I really enjoyed the narration. The guy uh, who they have doing the narration just puts everything into it. Uh, a lot of these sort of moments where it seems arbitrarily he just starts screaming what's going on, I guess, to kind of indicate a lot of pent-up anger and aggression that uh, this family is nursing uh, as they all meet up for Sunday lunch, and it's told from all these different perspectives of the family members, beginning with the hungover son who's just trying to sort of make it through, and his mother who was kind of, you know, desperate to kind of stay relevant as any kind of... Um, sexual being i suppose but like the family gathering at sunday lunch isn't really the best <laughs> audience for that yeah i love the mum but the mum's like oh you should go out and shag everyone <laughs> i did <laughs> this is like all right mum it's uh and i quite like the arts as well i like the sort of little musical interludes and stuff oh, like that yeah. they're brilliant but they're awful it's kind of like an american sitcom except it's it's made more dramatic by the fact that everything's like french yeah and everyone's just drunk <laughs> and angry uh, another film in the same uh, competition category which was absolutely brilliant uh Ciara O's film afternoon class from korea that also won an award and that's just absolutely amazing that's basically about this kid's struggle to stay awake and like for me it was like you know art history class or every, i think everyone had like a certain class where they just couldn't make it through like an entire lesson uh without just that kind of like need to just go to sleep 
start to bleed into like every ounce of your being. I actually get that way at certain festival screenings, to be honest. Where it's just like, oh, stay awake, please. Uh, so basically, his film just sort of illustrates that feeling, that sort of like that way that sleep just kind of starts to invade us and completely overtake us. A couple of really interesting films from Auteur de Minuit, who were also the people who produced Splinter Time. Uh, and uh, I think we were talking a little bit about them in the last episode or the episode before. Uh, they also produced Chris Shepard's film, The Ringer. It's a production company in France that, from what I have been able to tell, really have a keen intuitive sense of, of you know, really strong filmmakers and very interesting concepts for films. And one such film was Ghost Cell by Antoine de la Chalerie. And this was... It's kind of hard to describe. It's sort of CG meshwork that is done with such minute precision detail that it starts to create the overall effect of, like, macro photography, yeah. the way that that's captured. Like in weird the... and grey and, like, as if they've been inverted colours. Basically, yeah, it's that kind of thing. That's sort of the overall effect. I'll just show it to you. That's sort of the overall effect of this film. Oh, yeah, gross. <laughs> it's, like, really low poly. Yeah, but, like, also... But also not. It's also incredibly high poly. It's it's hugely complex CGI meshes to create this sort of low poly, sort of half formed human forms wandering it kind around. It looks like how Rhino tries to deal if you're trying to do something like really detailed, like it just can't do it. Right. Like it can, but then you'll try to run it through like a three D printing software, and it'll be like, no, that is too many corners. I get that's what it looks like. It looks like three D printed models yeah. that have been put together on a really small scale. So a great overall effect, really interesting. The Odd Man and the Bird was a film that I saw in Counters as well before I saw it as part of this. And it was just really confusing. I get really frustrated if there's a stop motion film and I can't figure out how it's done within the first five minutes. Mm. I'm, I I don't find that exciting. I find that deeply irritating. I'm like, I must know. Mm. Um, and it, I think it confused a lot of people. And I think that's probably... I mean, it's also a nice story. It's very miserable, but it's it's a nice film. That thing of, of not quite knowing how something is made. He was there, the filmmaker was there. He took a bit of heat for it. In, in I assume, good stride. Like we, It was part of a sort of filmmaker chat, and a couple of the other filmmakers sort of brought up that because at, this, at its surface it looks like very elaborate stop motion that has this amazing uh, attention to detail, when you find out how it is actually made, there's almost this feeling of like, kind of like you've been cheated a bit. That was that was what people were saying, and I, I'm not entirely sure if I if I feel that way. I understand that, but at no point did this guy sort of like make this film, and it's not like announced like, "Hey, everyone, look at my great stop motion film." Uh, what he did actually, going back to what I was saying before, he did his own version of that slowed down, fake pixelation type thing, where he has combined live action footage of a man in a very puppet esque looking costume in this uh, very well constructed environment. Uh, the animation predominantly is is the bird outside, so it's a kind of live action animation hybrid where the live action is shot in this quite interesting way that creates a pretty compelling visual. But I think because people, I you know, felt the need to kind of automatically associate one approach to the whole film, it kind of felt like he was getting a little bit criticised for that, and even the woman who. <laughs> was doing the Q&As, like her, her sort of way of, of bringing that whole thing up. 
that it wasn't actually a stop motion puppet. And she's like, yeah, I was sure when I, when I saw this, I was like, ah, oh, we are seeing the next Barry Purvis, uh, but nine. <laughs> <laughs> he just sat there like cheers. <laughs> but, no, I didn't, I don't know. I knew when I saw it that it wasn't straight stop motion. Like if it was, it was weird. It was because there was like a lot of scaling issues. Like the fact that his clothes looked like human man clothes and you would never be able to get a fabric that like the weave on a fabric that minute that it would look like a real human jumper tiny tiny little things like the way his hands interact with his clothing you would never even the best or most like the dexterity it just wouldn't be possible like wire isn't capable of doing the tiniest tiniest minute unless you're gonna like 3d print every single arm or something like that in in situ and and it didn't look like that either so it was kind of like mm, it doesn't read well i think it's maybe people didn't like it because it, it did broach the uncanny valley and people really get pissed when their brain gets like scared by the uncanny valley like people just do not like it like think of like tintin and think of like yeah. um polar express like how many people were just like i feel cheated i feel like i've been lied to it's like when people see a magic trick they don't like it's just mm. The Uncanny Valley is a really weird borderline that you have to never cross because people just don't like it. It makes them feel very uncomfortable. And because they can't express it in words, it just makes people angry. Now that you mentioned that, another thing he mentioned that was animated was the character's eyes. And if you look at it, they're, they're clearly not human eyes. And so they've basically imposed CGI's on top of the uh, the mask. Uh, in a kind of way that they superimpose live-action eyes over the puppet in Madame Tootly Pootly. Whereas that way around made this quite rudimentary puppet suddenly seem, like, full of life. Yeah. Uh, this kind of perhaps deadened this character a little by having the eyes be CG. Yeah, definitely. But I, I have to say, I, I really do like the film. Like, I, I like I like the ending. I like the, the tone of it, the music. Like, I, whether or not you consider it 100%. And and also like lots of films got in and get into festivals. I mean, we we've brought this up a billion times, but you know, I think one of everyone's favorite films from last year is Man O Man. The percentage of that that's animation is really quite small, but if it's a good enough film, you want it. You want to be able to sort of claim it as part of your, you know. Yeah, but I think with Man on Man, it was it was so clear that it wasn't stop motion because you can see the rods and it's all like jumping around and stuff. And yeah, there's no ambiguity that it was a live action. I have less of a problem with it being like because I never had a problem with Man on Man. If it's a good film, it's a good film. I don't care how it's made. Now, there's also another film uh, that played in this program that also played at Click, and we have the the filmmaker again as part of the Click podcast talking about the film that is predominantly a live action film. In fact, I. I'd be hard-pressed to find any part of the film that wasn't live-action, apart from maybe some, like, removal of the the sticks that puppeteer the puppets. And this was a film called Last Door South uh, by Sasha Feiner. And that is, as best I can tell, that is all just puppets. And that's gotten into a couple of animation festivals. And I, I find that a little more bothersome in the sense that nothing against the film. It's like, well, why is this in an animation festival? if we can only, like, isolate the animated elements as, as post-production, you know, adding a, a certain film grain to it, uh, removing rigs or, or setups and things like that. And also, the thing that kind of bugged me is, it, it I guess, in, like, homage to Eraserhead, 
it just stole all these visuals from Eraserhead. Oh, that one. Like, you know, the bricked-up window. The the monster is the exact same puppet yeah. as Eraserhead. Like, you can do an homage, but then at some point it's actually just kind of a copy. Not in terms of the story. The story, I think, was adapted from a, a comic or a book or something. But I don't know. I think the whole, is it puppet, is it animation, is it film? I think it's because there's no, it's not like there's very many puppet festivals. There's a very niche market. And I don't think a straight film festival would accept something like Man O' Man. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there are lots of festivals that, because of the strength of the film, I, I think that Man O' Man's definitely kind of made it into a... I think that they would probably struggle a little to know exactly where to put it, and that's why it's found itself in the animation category so often. But, well, in Encounters, for example, we saw Man O' Man, it wasn't part of an animation strand, it was part of the late-night f***ed-up film strand, and loads of festivals have those, you know. Yeah. Uh, so I think that, you know, there's... And that certainly this Last Door South would, would fall into that category as well. I also saw a couple of the kid films, which uh, were pretty good. There was one. Uh, there was one called "The Story of the Fox Who Lost His Mind." This was interesting. This was a German film, and it was basically the fox who got Alzheimer's, and all the other woodland creatures basically took the piss. Oh yeah, yeah I remember you telling me about this. I haven't seen this one. Yeah, it was kind of sweet, but it was also sweet in a kind of a f***ed up way. There was a, a really nice film called "Hey Dear" by Osh Baxi from Hungary. That was a film that had a really nice reveal. It was, you know, again for for kids, but. Really nice modeling, really nice CG. It was a very sort of simple but very well done premise about a deer who is, who lives alone in this cabin in this snowy glade. And every night he has to kind of batten down the hatches because there's this big earthquake that comes every night and uh, it makes a big mess of his cabin. And so he has to sort it out every day. And that was a, a I mean, if I, anyone sort of over a certain age can sort of piece together what's going on quite quickly, but it. I think for the kids in the audience, it was quite a nice reveal. You could sort of tell. And uh, also in that category... Okay, you think in Bristol, people are, are crazy about Shaun the Sheep. If you've ever seen a Shaun the Sheep in front of a, a theatre full of German children... They don't half love Shaun the Sheep. They showed the Farmer's Llamas. We talked to um, Jay Grace in December uh, about that project. Jay was there and he brought llamas in tow. And, uh, yeah, so I think that that's a pretty good chunk of uh, films to go through. Are you seeing any others there? Mm, no. No? No other films? I don't think so. By people who might be in this room that oh. you'd want to talk about? <laughs> well, your film was in Stuttgart as well, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a reason why I actually sort of crowbarred this in. I just sort of felt that people would appreciate hearing this story. Uh, the film did go down quite well, and I was a rock star for about six seconds of getting up on stage, and the, basically as soon as I opened my mouth, uh, it all came crashing down to reality when they asked me to explain why Sue Dunham was the director credit. And so I say, oh, well, Sue Dunham's my pseudonym. And then 800 German people in unison go, boo! <laughs> <laughs> you suck. So that thus ends the tale of... of Sue Dunham's brief popularity at ITFS Stuttgart. So there you go. I just thought people would enjoy that. There you go. That was Stuttgart. Laura, thank you very much for talking with me about the film. It's good to to have someone to uh, to bounce off of rather than just talking into an empty room. I get lonely. <laughs> well, I'm marginally better than the empty room. So before we wrap things up, 
Here's some upcoming events and such that may be of interest. If you're listening to this on the 18th of May, you might wish to come down to see Programme 5 of This Is Not A Cartoon, our package of international animated short films. We'll be joined by RCA filmmaker and director of Tusk and Mr. Medea, Rory Woodby Tolly, who you might remember from the British Animation Awards special podcast. And he's going to be joining us for a Q&A after the screening. Yeah, so that is the 18th of May, as in today, the day the podcast has gone up. So hopefully some of you who might be in the area will be able to make it to home in Manchester when things kick off at 6.20pm. For more info on the programme and prior editions, visit thisisnotacartoon.com. And sticking with Home in Manchester, I'll be doing an introduction to a special preview screening of Studio Ghibli's When Marnie Was There. The film is another classic example of Studio Ghibli's emotional intensity and sublime filmmaking. So come on down to Home on Saturday the 21st of May at 8pm for the preview screening of When Marnie Was There at Home in Manchester. For more details on that and for more stuff for the Home first birthday weekend, they're all available at homemcr.org. And finally, the Manchester Animation Festival is still open for entries for our film competition. So we're after submissions for short film, student film and commissioned films. And don't forget, we've got a brand new competition for the all-important individuals who've worked on commissioned films. So if you are, or if you know, a fantastic storyboard artist, a writer or an animator who has worked on a commissioned advert, TV series or any other real type of uh, animated work that's been commissioned, we'd like to see them reward for their efforts with our brand new Industry Excellence Award. The competition is open for entries until the 29th of July and for more information on that you can visit manchesteranimationfestival.co.uk Outside of the UK, for those of you who may be in Lucerne in Switzerland, this Friday the short film night's tour that includes my latest film, Clean and Throw, will be hosting two simultaneous screenings of their programme at different venues in the city, starting at half eight at the Kino Borbaki, and a slightly later start of 8.45 at the Stat Kino. And the following week, you can catch the program at the Kino Qtopia in Ulster, starting at half eight on Friday, May 27th, then repeated again the following night, May 28th. Those same dates, the program will play in St. Gallen at the Kino Locromis, again Friday 27th and Saturday 28th, both starting at the earlier time of 8 p.m., For full info on the specifics, and to keep up to speed with future dates, visit kurtzfilmnacht.ch. And thank you very much again to our guest, Joe Bram. Check out Studio Joho's work at studiojoho.com, including recent projects such as their cartoon pilot, Final Space, as well as their web series, Dan the Man, the game for which is set to be released soon. The next upcoming screening for The Meek will be at the Sydney Film Festival, where it's up for a Dendi Award. You can catch the screening at 2.15pm Saturday, June 18th, and 10.45am Sunday, June 19th. For specifics and venue info, visit sff.org.au. Joe is also on the hunt for cell action animators over there in Brisbane, so if that's your bag, and you happen to be in the area, or you're possibly up for a change of scenery may very well be worth shooting him a message via the website. Again, that's studiojoho.com. And they're on Twitter, at studiojoho. You can also follow my good self on Twitter, at Ben L. Mitchell, or Steve, at Mr. Underscore S. Underscore Henderson. And if you're not already, Squiggly are at Squiggly. And we're on facebook.com slash squigglymagazine. Of course, the website itself is squiggly.com. We have some great stuff lined up for the site that's going up in the next couple weeks, so keep your eyes on it between now and the next episode. Until then, 
Happy animating!